of people have really bad preconceived misconceptions about how a survivor will act once raped. Wade Robson got on the stand and said that he was never sexually assaulted by, uh, by Michael Jackson. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that he was coached by Michael Jackson over the phone over the course of days and days and days prior to giving that testimony. And they even had Michael Jackson's music playing while he's waiting to be called to the stand. You've got the best weapon um, in the world, and it's something that the other side doesn't have, and that's the truth. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome to our inaugural episode of Parallel Justice. To start things off right, we have an exciting two-parter for you today, featuring the lead attorneys in cases that changed our perception on celebrities we thought we knew. In part one, we will discuss how these attorneys protect their client when a high-powered, widely respected celebrity has assaulted or abused them. Then in part two, we will look specifically at the cases of Michael Jackson, Bill Cosby, Brett Kavanaugh, Harvey Weinstein, and Kobe Bryant, and how their victims were finally able to seek justice. Joining me today are Vince Finaldi, John Clune, and Kristen Gibbons-Fedden. These three amazing attorneys' records speak for themselves, so I'm going to ask each of them to give us a brief introduction, starting with Kristen. Hi, my name is Kristen Gibbons-Fedden. I am an attorney with Saltzman, Galuzzi, and Bendeski, where I run the sexual abuse practice group there, and I represent survivors of crime, particularly survivors of sexual abuse. Uh, formerly, I was a prosecutor, um, where I prosecuted uh, crimes of a sexual nature, homicide, elder abuse, and domestic violence. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is John Clune, and I'm with the law firm Hutchinson Black & Cook in Boulder, Colorado. And like Kristen, I was formerly a prosecutor 
uh, in the mountains, um, where I also prosecuted um, a number of different things, but in the last couple of years were primarily around sexual assault cases. Uh, after prosecuting, I was I, my wife and I started the Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center, which is a nonprofit that does pro bono legal work for uh, crime victims. And, and then I came to, to HBC, where I primarily do civil cases on behalf of sexual assault survivors. And last but definitely not least, Vince, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Vince Finaldi. I'm a partner here at Manley Stewart and Finaldi in Southern California. And uh, my practice is concentrated on representing victims of sexual abuse. It's the only area that I practice in um, and have practiced in through my, my whole career. Uh, so that's about 18 years. And uh, we represent child victims of sexual abuse and adult victims, a little bit of sexual harassment as well, but primarily we represent uh, individuals who are abused as children. Thank you. We're so excited to have the three of you on today and the wealth of experience that you bring. I know that you all specialize in, in abuse and in representing victims of crime, but we're going to ask you to dig down even deeper today to talk about the times you've represented clients against defendants who are not only high powered and not only wealthy, but are just very much beloved or respected by the public. So I'd like to start by asking each of you just to share the cases that we're going to start to unpack today. I'll start. Um, so I, I've done a, a number of cases against uh, professional athletes. Uh, we had a case involving uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, James Winston, quarterback in the NFL, a couple of other NFL athletes, and baseball Cy Young Award winner, uh, Johan Santana. Uh, I've also represented a number of victims of um, movie producer Harvey Weinstein, uh, and also represented um, one of the victims of uh, now Supreme Court Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Um I have, I think the most high profile case that I have that I'll be speaking on today is um, a case that I prosecuted when I was a former prosecutor, uh, where I prosecuted Bill Cosby. Um, I was one of the prosecutors. Uh, I obviously was the prosecutor during the investigation. I was also the prosecutor in the first trial, as well as a prosecutor in the second trial as well. And Vince? Sure. I, I you know, represented victims uh, who were abused by uh, people who are either celebrities, uh, famous sports stars, uh, you name it, uh, throughout the course of my career, celebrated priests, um, doctors. Probably the most high profile is uh, my cases involving Michael Jackson, the entertainer. So, John, you mentioned that you've represented victims of both Kobe Bryant, Harvey Weinstein, Brett Kavanaugh, and several others. A lot of the athletics cases and really any high profile figure accused of assault, they always seem to remain very much respected and beloved, even after accusations. And Kavanaugh might have been respected and maybe viewed with suspicion, but he still made it to the Supreme Court. So given all of that, do you handle media and press differently in these cases? And how do the public perceptions impact your clients and their lives? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, they're, they're very different cases, the athlete cases versus something like Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, one thing that's always interesting about the athlete cases is, um, you know, they have a brand that they are putting out there. And 
part of the brand is this you know, persona that they're doing through either interviews or charity events or donations. Part of their brand is how they do on the field or on the court or whatever the case may be. So, you know, you have a you have somebody who does very well in um, on a Saturday or Sunday in their particular sport, and you know, some people um, you know are more willing to embrace them because they are succeeding in their their sport. So, in you know, in those cases, you can't really fight the PR machine that they can get from you know being successful athletes. Um, but, uh, but you certainly can have an impact on how the media covers uh, the case generally. And so, you know, we try to be, you know, more proactive with the media on those cases. With Kavanaugh, it was such a different experience because, you know, the way our country is so politicized these days, you had a host of, of you know, news networks that were completely behind you and your client. 100%. And so, you know, you could go on, whether it was, you know, you know, Anderson Cooper, or Rachel Maddow, or whatever the case may be, and get, you know, really favorable coverage. Um, but the other side of the coin, the, you know, Fox News and more conservative outlets, you know, largely didn't reach out. So it just was a, it was a very different um, environment than most sexual assault cases, because it was so politicized and our media has become politicized as well. There was a lot of, you know, opportunity that was fairly easy to get, you know, um, certain messages out that you wanted to get out. And I think you bring up a good point of the PR machine and really creating this image, which leads me to Vince. I think the Jackson case probably illustrates this the best, where you are looking at a massive PR machine and people who are really adamant that, that he was innocent and that they were personally invested to where we saw people cheering in the streets. What do you think makes people so invested in these cases to where they're not willing to listen to victims? Well, you know, that's a, that's a, it's a complicated question that, you know, is, is, is one that has many facets to it. You know, when you, when you think of an entertainer of this nature, um, oftentimes, it's a it's a multi generational thing. Um, it's not just that this person, uh, you know, was you know, a fan of their music. Their mother may have been, their grandmother may have been. So it's a it's it, it could be a multi generational thing. And also, you have to remember that music it does help to change people's lives. It inspires people. It helps us get through the the, the roughest times we've had in our lives. And some individuals uh, can blur the line between music and someone being an entertainer and actually being a part of their lives. And when that happens, I think you can get certain individuals who think they actually know the entertainer, um, they have a connection with them. And uh, that's when, you know, you, you, you get this phenomenon where they just refuse to believe uh, that they've done or can ever do any, anything wrong. Um, I mean, it's, it's important to, to understand that regardless of who it is, you know, it could be a, a, a president of a country, an entertainer, a sports star, they're all humans. And because they're humans, they're not perfect. Uh, every single one of them is flawed. And as a litigator, um, that's, that's the mindset that you have to come into these cases with. And so it's your job as a trial attorney to educate the public and most importantly, your jurors on the fact that, you know, we're not dealing with a celebrity here, we're dealing with John Doe, um, and, and this is a normal person who grew up 
usually in a, in a fairly normal uh, upbringing, not the case of Michael Jackson. Um, and, and, and you kind of take, take it out of the, of the whole, you know, celebrity aspect. It's, it's really important to deal with that, uh, on voir dire as well. What type of questions do you ask on voir dire to find out what kind of juror you're handling? Yeah. So I haven't gotten to that stage yet in this case. Uh, that would be a very important, you know, area of voir dire, but I have done a lot of cases involving some, you know, priests, for example, that were just celebrated in a community. There was one up in Stockton, California, that this priest um, had been there for, for over 30 years. He was an Irish priest, just beloved. And so our first day of trial, we show up and the, the entire uh, audience is filled with women from the congregation wearing Kelly green shirts in support of him. The entire, the, the entire uh, courtroom was packed. And so, you know, that's just one, one thing you have to deal with. And, you know, what you're looking for is a juror who's, who's not biased, who can be fair and impartial and, and give your client a fair shake. You know, that's what you're generally trying to ferret out. Kristen, I think the Cosby case was an interesting case because the way it came about in the end was a comedian really reignited that investigation by making a joke on stage. We saw that in the R. Kelly case too with Surviving R. Kelly where the show drove the prosecutor to finally pursue charges in Chicago. Do you think that there's a way to harness the media instead of allowing it to get in front of you and, and really damage a case, but to harness it instead to bring more light to these cases and possibly to do some of your own work outside of the courtroom? Yeah, Renee, you know, that I think that's a fabulous question, but I think that the answer is actually differs when you're prosecuting a case criminally versus when you are litigating a case civilly. Um, and the main reason is because, you know, for like the Bill Cosby case, we were very limited in the things that we could say as a prosecutor. And we wanted to prosecute the case on a conservative level such that, you know, there could be no argument, no fair, reasonable argument that we made any attempts to taint the jury against Bill Cosby or anything like that by making statements about his guilt or things like that. We wanted to eliminate any and all issues that could arise that could, you know, potentially uh, turn the case or, you know, give him grounds for an argument that the case was unfair. Now, obviously, we know. Yeah, he actually succeeded in the end, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but that was our thinking in terms of in, in the front end. And so while we wanted very much to control the narrative, we had to be very careful because we had certain ethical obligations as a prosecutor, such that we didn't want to, any potential juror to be tainted or infer his guilt before they heard any evidence in the courtroom. So we had different ethical obligations there. But I think from a civil perspective, um, there are certain times when the media can be really, truly helpful, not just in litigating your case, but I think, and I hope Vince and John agree, but you know, when we're talking about sex abuse, one of the major things that we, at least I believe as a litigator, that we have to do is really educate the jury. And when I say jury, you have to educate sometimes the defense attorney, the defendant, whoever, you have to educate whoever is in charge of settlement discussions or even verdicts. 
because a lot of people have really bad preconceived misconceptions about how a survivor will act once raped, how a survivor will, you know, uh, beforehand, what they should be wearing, how one outfit, you know, could have some type of uh, ability on whether or not they wanted the sexual contact or not. And so a lot of, I believe a lot of our job throughout the process is educating. And so in the civil arena, the media can be really useful by giving you that platform to educate potential jurors and, and really um, the public image of the case, particularly high profile cases, so that you can get your word out there and educate people, show them that all of these rape myths or, um, you know, preconceived conceptions about how a, a, a survivor of sexual assault should act and show them that these rape myths are just that myths and, you know, show them that delayed disclosure is the norm or, you know, cognitive dissonance or things like that. And so I think from the prosecutorial standpoint, the media can, you really don't want to put out anything that would, you know, you don't want to put out a narrative other than your police report, your affidavit of probable cause. But in the civil arena, not only can you create the narrative through your complaint, but you can also, you know, use the media to your advantage to educate potential jurors as well as the public. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And I'd also add that, you know, this was much more difficult when I started practicing, you know, my first year was in 05. Back then, uh, you know, your general voir dire, a lot of the jurors didn't really know a lot of the mechanics of sexual abuse, how it worked. A lot of them did not want to talk about it. We got a lot of hands raised. I want to talk to the judge back in chambers. Fast forward now, we've had the Me Too era, and we're going into voir dire, and most of the jurors are nodding their head when you're talking about issues related to sexual abuse. You're not getting as many hands raised. You know, the, the jurors are confident to talk about these issues. Look, I was raped as a child. Um, so I, I think our job's getting a little bit easier in that respect. But one of the things we're seeing now um, is kind of a blowback from that is some of the people saying, well, I guess everyone was abused. And, you know, now everyone's hopping on the bus. And that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, the pendulum has kind of swung the other way a little bit. And we have to deal with that, that new issue that we weren't dealing with before as much, you know. You know, Renee, another thing that we're that I try to be focused on with the media is that, you know, we ask our clients to, um, other than talking with their closest friends and family and therapists to not really discuss the case, um, that, you know, these communications are, you know, potentially going to be used against them at some point. And if the media is out there kind of chewing on the facts of the case or talking about your client, uh, it can really be a difficult road for your client um, to hoe if, you know, they have to, all their friends, all their family are following the media closely, even if they can be um, savvy enough to not do that. And so, you know, leaving that just a chance um, can be, you know, leaving your victim very exposed. And we've had cases where clients have, you know, kind of gotten beaten down by the media exposure back in the day, back when, when I probably didn't do the level of media interaction that I do now. And so making sure that your client is being well represented, even if it's not to like strangers across the country, but to you know, their employers, their, um, their other friends, their other family members, you know, their distant cousins that you know, maybe they're not talking to, but is, you know, cares about the case because so they're following it. 
I think it's really important to make sure that your client's not getting beat up, to, at least in front of the, the audience that they care about. So I think all three of you bring up great points, should not be surprising, but one, because of the massive amount of publicity in these cases, and then two, as Kristen pointed out, the civil justice system is very different from the criminal justice system, which is the point of this podcast, but most of these cases went to a criminal trial and the defendants were acquitted and then it went into a civil trial. How does that impact one, how you litigate the case? And do you think it affects your ending ability to, to actually prove the case? Um, so yeah, I mean, in the Michael Jackson case, that's what we're one of the, one of the issues that we're dealing with here, you know, um, number one, I, I never see that as fatal. We've had cases like that before. Uh, we routinely take them. Um, the reason it's not fatal is because number one, it's a different standard um, of legal proof. You know, we don't have to prove a case by, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt in the civil arena. And also uh, we don't have to get a unanimous jury. Uh, in California, we have to get nine jurors. So I can drop three and still win. Uh, that's a huge, huge difference from the criminal case. Also, um, you know, well, the, the prior acquittal might be regarding a different victim, uh, as is the case in the, with, with, with the Jackson case. Um, and, you know, importantly, in that case, um, the acquittal uh, was earned largely uh, due to the testimony of my client, uh, who, who testified falsely, um, pursuant to Michael Jackson's uh, and his team's um, requests and coaching. So if you look at that case, um, you know, it's, it's public record that Wade Robson got on the stand and said that he was never sexually assaulted by, uh, by Michael Jackson. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that he was coached by Michael Jackson over the phone over the course of days and days and days prior to giving that testimony. The day he gave the testimony, he was waiting in a room in the courthouse along with all of Michael Jackson's team and they even had Michael Jackson's music playing while he's waiting to be called to the stand. Um, so, I mean, if that's not, uh, you know, manipulating the process, I don't know what is. But moreover, when Wade was a child uh, during the Jordan Chandler case, uh, he was actually subpoenaed uh, to testify. Michael Jackson's team got involved. They got attorneys for him. Uh, and, uh, he, you know, he refused. And they brought legal process against him. And, and, and held him in contempt. You know, the entire time, Michael Jackson said, they're just trying to break us up. These are, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to hurt you. They're gonna put you in jail, your mom in jail. They're gonna send you back to Australia because he was here on a visa. You know, Michael brought him out here to work. And so, you know, to the young Wade, he thought all oh, this is true. You know, I need to listen to, 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 to Mr. Jackson. And, you know, so he got up there and he lied. So he had already lied when he was a kid. Uh, due to this, you know, manipulation that he was is facing, which is very common with sexual abuse. Um, so when you understand the, the dynamics of it, the mechanics of how it worked, um, and you start to pick it apart as an attorney, um, you know, especially in sexual abuse cases, there's no perfect case. You know, all all cases have issues, and this is just one issue that you have to deal with. So our listeners can't see this, but both John and Kristen had visible reactions to what Vince just described. And I think that's because as attorneys, there's a certain level of behavior you expect 
as far as manipulation of, of a victim. And then there are things that are just beyond the pale. And I think that what Vince just described is definitely beyond the pale. But I think that happens in a lot of these trials. And there's a level of victim blaming that really just becomes sickening in all of these cases. So question for all three of you, how do you prepare your client to go into that? I'll, I'll start. Um, you know, first of all, I, I think that um, as a society, we've gotten a lot better. Um, I think it, the, the blaming happens less than it did. It's still significant, but, you know, I've been um, practicing for um, for 25 years now. And, um, you know, when I first started, um, it was very different. Uh, the, the media was very different. The coverage of these issues was very different. I mean, we can, you know, like Vince was talking about how the jurors are different now. Um, the, the media, they, they're, so many media are trauma-informed to use the an industry term. And, you know, if they don't know a certain issue, they want to get it right. They want to hear from you about you know, why, um, what the explanation is for certain behaviors that may be counterintuitive. So um, I think the media coverage of these issues has improved um, dramatically. Um, what we try to do is, um, you know, look at the case, look at the facts of the case, where are the issues that, you know, we think um, the general public, the jury, the judge, anybody may have issues and start to try to get ahead of those issues um, right from the outset of the case, including in the drafting of the complaint. If there's something that we think needs to, uh, we need to cut something off before a judge may reach an improper conclusion, we'll go ahead and put it right in there. Um, and, uh, and I think that's helpful and to kind of be able to empower the victim to be you know, prepared for what those issues are and how we're going to address them, both in the media and with the court. Um, can be, um, you know, very helpful, but it falls on this general backdrop of, you know, everybody has a better sense, I shouldn't say everybody, many people have a better sense of trauma issues these days, and so it's a little bit more receptive of an audience than it may have been 20 years ago. Yeah, I couldn't agree more um, with John, and I think one of the things um, in preparing your survivor, your client, you also have to prepare the legal team as a whole. So, you know, for example, like my paralegal is trauma-informed trained. Um, you know, you want to make sure your whole staff is trauma-informed. The reason I say that is because I think it's really important that one, you build the transparency. You let that survivor know from the start, this is going to be a prosecution or a litigation. This is not going to be easy. You may, you are going to be asked very invasive questions. You are, they're going to put you through, you know, the ringer. They're going to depose you and ask you really, really intimate, dirty details that have no bearing on this case. But I'm going to be here with you. Paralegal is going to be here too. We are all working together as a team and we know these facts and we are still representing you to the fullest and anything that may come out in the deposition that may not be admissible at trial. And we are still going to fight for you zealously. We're going to advocate for you so you don't have to worry, but I'd be remiss if I lied to you or misled you and told you that these things wouldn't come up. They are going to come up you are going to most likely be re-traumatized, but I'm going to be here with you. 
And I think that's the main thing that I try to convey to all of my survivors. And I know that, you know, reasonable people can disagree, but I just find that it helps to build the rapport so that later on, when, when it does happen, they're not looking back to me and saying, I wasn't prepared for this. You never told me they were going to ask me about this prior, you know, sexual encounter that I had that has nothing to do with this case, you know? Uh, they're going to know going in, you know, being prepared to actually talk about this before I even, you know, to be honest with you, before I even sign the case, because I want to make sure that the survivor, that I'm like walking with the survivor through this and not like, you know, pulling, leading, or in any way being unclear about what the process entails, because I really do, and I think this is probably, you know, the same with Vince and John, you know, we do this to really help our clients get justice. And I don't think I would be helping with that journey for them if I'm not honest about what the road in the civil arena or in the criminal really looks like. Well, and, and, and I'd add to that, that, um, you know, not every client that comes through our door gets a recommendation that you file a case and, and, and go to trial. Um, you, you make that evaluation as an attorney because um, you have, you, you've got a duty, you have an ethical duty to the client to evaluate all aspects of the case. And if there are certain issues related to a client's background or their emotional you know, health that make it such that they would not be a, a, a good um, litigant, then, then you've got a duty to let them know. And that's happened before. I've had clients come through and they're just in too fragile a state. And we say, look, get into therapy. You've got time work through these issues and, and we'll be here for you. And, you know, when, when they're, when they're in a stronger position and place, then, then we have gone forward with their case. Um, sometimes you can't do that because you're up against the statute of limitations. Um, but that's, that's, that's all part of the process. Yeah. And, um, you know, as to being, you know, beaten up and everything else, what, what I always tell my clients is, look, you've got the best weapon um, in the world. And it's something that the other side doesn't have. And that's the truth. All you have to do is sit down there and tell the truth, tell your story, and you have nothing to keep straight. You don't have lies to keep straight and to remember, and what did I say about this? And what did I say about that? You know, so, so in many ways, your job is the easiest. You know, although it's hard to tell your story, it's difficult to, to, to look in the eyes of strangers and say, you know, what happened to you uh, because it's such an intimate wrong. Um, you don't have anything to keep straight. Just tell the truth and, uh, and, and, and we'll deal with the rest, you know, and, that, and that's, that's really liberating for clients when they hear that. One of the things you've all mentioned has been the increase in awareness in justice professionals and in jurors surrounding Me Too and allegations of abuse and how to handle that. And that's post Me Too and the Me Too movement. We actually have a podcast on the Me Too movement. And John, this question is specifically for you because one of the participants in that said she believed that after Kavanaugh was confirmed, she started to slowly see the crumbling of Me Too a bit and some of the backlash and the turning point of maybe this is going to be more of a moment than a movement. Have you felt that? post do you see that or do you think that things aren't as dire as all that well i see i first of all let me start off by saying i'm i'm an internal optimist but i i you know i don't think that you know me too was the product of so many years of momentum building and so much work on behalf of survivors and advocates 
you know, it didn't just happen out of nowhere. I mean, th this was something that was coming down the tracks for a long period of time. So the, the but and then it, it exploded like a power keg in the fall of 2017. Um, and it was, you know, it was a great thing to see. Survivors were being believed, um, you know, left and right, and people were being held accountable. And um, I think there was predictably a little bit of a boomerang effect because it was so fast and so intense, it was going to be too much for, you know, at least some segment of the community. And so, you know, the Kavanaugh confirmation was, you know, it was deflating. It was deflating for a lot of people and a lot of survivors, a lot of advocates, because, you know, we kind of just sent the message that at the highest level of government, um, whether it's, you know, our president or, you know, a Supreme Court justice, that sexual assault is something that we're willing to um, look the other way and, and not really care about. So I think that that, was, that instance was very deflating, but I think that, that, that the boomerang was already starting to happen and Kavanaugh was just something that highlighted that. I, I've started to see that, that boomerang effect start to slow now. And I, so I, I see this, um, this backlash um, from, you know, the, the you know, pro-men's rights or, um, you know, what, whatever, whatever you want to call that segment that um, is, you know, behind that pushback, I see that as something that's going to crumble um, in the not too distant future. And long term, I think we're going to continue to move forward. Um, and that's, you know, that's somebody who, like I said, from working in this for 25 years, um, you know, I've just seen so much progress. And even as we sit here right now, or even in the darkest hours after the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation, we were still far more ahead of, of the times than, you know, we were 20 years ago. It was, it was easy to look back and just compare it to, you know, Justice Thomas's confirmation. And I'm sure there were a lot of similarities between the two, but generally society's understanding and acceptance of survivors and their accounts is just fundamentally different than it was back then. I'd agree with that. And you can actually tell from just juxtaposing the questioning in the two different hearings, you know, Justice Thomas and, and now, um, you know, obviously it was not the result that, that I think should have, should have been had, you know, but, um, and actually, I don't think, you know, the, the, the women were treated with the, you know, level of respect they should have had, but it was a, a far cry from what happened back in the 90s with, with Justice Thomas. Um, so I, I, I do think this is, it's a, it's a big, big problem in the world. Uh, it's a complicated problem. And it's not something that we're going to solve through a matter of months by using a hashtag and, 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 and you know, putting a bunch of promotions and, and educating people. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much more complicated problem with that. It's a societal problem. Um, and it's gonna take years and years, probably decades to, to, to eradicate, you know, if, if we ever can. We're going to end today's episode with those thoughts, but the great news is Vince, John and Kristen have all agreed to join us next week to discuss how they took on some of the most prolific and famous celebrities accused of abuse and how they protected their clients. Thank you so much for joining us today. You will not want to miss next week. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. 
We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.